Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This is part two of David's Great Battles series, uh, recorded at Caulfield Shul in Melbourne at the end of 2019. As with last week's lecture, this talk relies heavily on the graphics that David lays out on a whiteboard. In order to try and reproduce that experience, we have created quite a detailed map to allow you to follow. Please refer to this map as provided on the episode webpage. Go to davidsolomon.online slash podcasts and click on the link to episode 67. What I'm going to talk about tonight, last week if you would recall, I picked three battles from Tanakh, I picked two battles from Sefer Shoftim, we looked at Dvorah, we looked at Gidon, and I picked one battle from the book of Shmuel, because I want, the, and what those three battles had in common was, those of you who were here and listening, what did all those three battles have in common, apart from the fact that they were in the Bible, what did they have in common? They all happened in the Jezreel Valley. And I pointed, I was at pains to point out, and some people were worried about how much time I spent on that last week, and I did spend a lot of time, and maybe a bit too much time, but it's so important. For the first 45 minutes last week, I actually went into detail on the geography of the land of Israel, and particularly of the Jezreel Valley, in order to understand those battles. And once again, I reiterate, not only is our understanding of battles, almost impossible without an understanding of the geography and the terrain and the topography of the land, but as I said last week, it transforms our entire understanding of Jewish history. What I'm going to look at tonight, last week I looked at three battles, tonight I'm going to look at four battles. I'm going to look at four battles, but what they all have in common is that they were all conducted under the one commanding officer. And I'm going to be talking about the battles, the four early battles of the Maccabees. Now, I know some of you are sitting there going, oh, I can't believe he's going to talk about the Maccabees. He's talking about the Maccabees and, well, we've learned that story since we were children. Yeah? There were these horrible Greeks. Judah Maccabee and his men got rid of them. Oil, eight days. Donuts. And that's basically the story that we're told from the time that we are children. Those of us who go into a little bit more detail will say, well, maybe Judah Maccabee... It didn't just all happen at once. Maybe there were kind of a couple of fights against the Greeks. What a lot of people don't realize, of course, is that the four battles that I'm going to show you, which are the four battles that go from the beginning of the revolt to the rededication of the temple, are only the first four of a great number of battles that the Maccabees fought against the Seleucid dynasty against the Seleucid occupation. There were at least eight major battles and some minor ones 
until the Greeks actually finally allowed the Jews to have some kind of religious independence. And it was a full 30 years before Judea actually gained political, full political independence from the Greeks. People don't realize this. It was a massive project that went from around minus 165 to around minus 135. We're just looking tonight at the first four battles that led from the beginning of the rebellion up until the point where Judah Maccabee felt that he was in a position to be able to go and rededicate the temple. Bearing in mind, when he rededicated the temple, there was still a massive Seleucid presence in Jerusalem. But we're going to look at these battles because these battles are astonishing. They're astonishing then and they're astonishing now. Many of you believe still that the lighting of the candles and the little jar of oil that lasted for eight days is the essential miracle of Hanukkah and it's not. That story was introduced much, much later into rabbinic literature. Perhaps because they wanted to take the edge off the triumphalism of the Hasmoneans in what was the real miracle of Hanukkah, which was this unbelievable military victory against a superpower. And we're going to look at that in some detail. And once again, as I said last week, as I said last week, and I will say again, our knowledge of these battles is transformed and fundamentally underlined by our understanding of the geography of the land of Israel. So, I'm not going to spend 45 minutes on it. If I did, that would be fine, because there's a lot to learn. But I'm going to do it as quickly as I can. And I'm going to show you the area that we're going to concentrate on. So, obviously, there's the land of Israel in broad spectrum. Obviously, last week, we looked at battles that happened in the Jezreel Valley. Let's look again at our major topographical points. We have, this is always a good place to start, the Hill of Carmel coming here and coming down here. And we had the Jezreel Valley up here. Beyond that is going to be the Galil, Lower and Upper Galilee. Everybody follow. We got the Sea of Galilee here. This area that I started drawing here, that's going to be, well, these are Samaria, and that's going to lead on to Judah, and eventually, obviously, Jerusalem is going to, let's put Jerusalem here to give ourselves a guiding sense. The Jordan River is going to come into the Dead Sea here. Jerusalem, we're going to put a little bit further inland, but bearing in mind, of course, that there's a massive slope that goes down here. This is the Judean wilderness. And this is the coastal plain. Everybody follow that so far? Now, between the coastal plain and the hill country of the center of the, of, of the land, the Judean hills and the Sumerian hill country, starting west, approximately, approximately west of Yafo, is an area that I mentioned briefly last week, a distinct geographical area of lower foothills that runs just west of the Judean hills. And that area is called, 
the shvela. When you look at satellite maps, or you look at maps, or you look at pictures, you will see there is this low-lying hill country, probably, well, just to point things out, not everything here is the same height. It's all much higher than here. But remember we spoke briefly, you've got a Benjamin Plateau. Yeah, what they call the Benjaminian Plateau here. And that's also Jerusalem sits at about that elevation, around about 2,600 feet. Whereas Hebron and Bet El, which are much higher, are going to be over 3,000 feet. The Shvela is about halfway between the coastal plain and here. So we're sitting in around about uh, maximum 1,200 feet. And in many cases, it's really only around 250 to 400 meters. And it's kind of these hills. It's typical biblical country. When you want to look at a picture of the Bible and you see it's like those low lying hills. You see them as you drive around Israel. If you're on the coast and driving north, say, you would look to your right and you would see those low lying hills just in front of the higher hills that are Judean hill country. Everybody follow what I'm saying? Now, here's the really, really big thing that we need to understand about this geographically for the purpose of this talk, without which it's going to be difficult. And that is that this hill country is intersected by several important valleys that still sit more or less at the coastal level around which the hills form. Clearly, those valleys subsequently become major passes through which to access the hill country. Everybody follow? Now, I'm only going to spend a few minutes on this, but it's very important that we understand that the Shvela is intersected by a number of valleys, but importantly, in terms of history, in terms of access, in terms of even infrastructure today, there are five major valley passes going through the Shvela into the hill country, and you would take one of those depending on who you are, what you wanted to do, and where you wanted to get to. The first of these is probably the best known. It's the widest of the valleys into the Shvela, and it is, of course, called the... When I say it, some of you are going to go, ah, oh, that's what that is. It's called the Ayalon. The Ayalon goes into the Shvela. Now, the Ayalon, because it's the widest path and also the first one you get to from the north, has generally been the traditional access of armies who are coming and want to penetrate into the hillside. In fact, not just armies, pilgrims, anyone. Whether you are in the ancient world or whether you are in Israel of 2020, you are going to go to Jerusalem via the Ayalon. The next pass into the Shvela, south of that, is a part... Now, when you look at a map, when you look at a map, you'll weep at my scale. Not everything is exactly matched up. I'm giving you a broad idea. But it's pretty, it's pretty good. This next pass is called, anyone know what that's called? It's called the Sorek Valley. The Sorek. That so happens to be where a lot of biblical incidents happen. If you look, for example, uh, Shimshon. 
Yep, Samson. He was mucking around, doing all that stuff around here. Bearing in mind that if we start, we understand the geography of the Shvelah, then we understand the whole geography, it's not the subject of tonight's talk, but of the whole Bible and the Philistines and their Pentapolis and where it was. Because you had three cities along the coast, and you had two cities, Gath here and Ekron here, at the entrances to the Shvelah. The third valley pass coming into the Shvelah is... Come on, some of you gave yourselves a five last week out of ten on Israeli geography. Is the Valley of Elah. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. Your support can really make a difference. If you enjoy these lectures, please consider rating or reviewing this podcast or simply telling others who may be interested. Now, let's get back to the lecture. What famous, famous battle happened in the Valley of Elah that we did not discuss? The Battle of Ela Valley. Outstanding. Very good. That's where David fought Goliath. Lots of some other things happened in the Valley of Ela, but that happens there. You've got two more which are lesser known today, but there is a valley here called the Valley of Guvrin. And by the way, by the way, what I'm talking about now is going to be useful not just for today's talk, but for the couple of talks to come. And then you've got another valley at the south here, at the bottom, almost at the end of the Shvelah, which is the pass of Lachish, because the biblical city of Lachish sat here. When you go, and it's not the subject of tonight's talk, but when you go and you look at all the cities that were fortified by all the different kings and the various rearrangements and where they would send the army, where we would be fortified, it's always to do with the geography. And the Shvelah is massively important. Yep. So that's, that's we've got the Ayalon, the Sorek, the Valley of Elah, Guvrin, and Lachish. If you, for example, were going straight to Hebron, here, you'd obviously take that route. You wouldn't take that one. Follow? But the different places to access, but also it might depend on who you are and what you were carrying and who you were walking with. And bearing in mind, these are just the accesses to Jerusalem through the Shvelah. We're not even talking about accesses from the, yet from the south, from the east, from the, west, from the north, just from the west. All right. Now, I don't know if you heard about it, but... Alexander the Great conquered the world in about minus 330. And then he died in around, say, minus 323. And all of his conquests were ripped apart, basically, by his main generals. And they formed various dynasties. And for our purposes, there were two very important Hellenic dynasties. And one was here. It was the Seleucid dynasty, and one was here in Egypt, the Ptolemaic. And through much of the third century, these two dynasties, both of which were Hellenic, the Ptolemaics a little bit more chilled perhaps, were fighting over the land of Israel as a buffer zone and as a, that they wanted to annex to their empire. And by the end of the third century, that pretty much ended up in the hands of the Seleucid kings. The Seleucids were Hellenizers, and Hellenizers had traditionally been okay with religious tolerance. They had, in fact, didn't have a problem, they didn't have a problem with the Jews. Antiochus III, 
sent gifts to the temple. It was a law that the temples of various religions throughout the Seleucid Empire were inviolate. And that doesn't mean that he was a nice guy. I don't know if you can imagine if there would be a world leader who would be good to the Jews, not necessarily a nice guy. I thought they would get more of a smile. But things were okay at that stage in the Seleucid Empire, although there were increasing factions of Jews. I don't know if you could imagine a generation in which some Jews are avowedly secular, but they were pushing for greater Hellenization in Jewish society. And after a number of different confusions going on in the Seleucid Empire following the death of Antiochus III, eventually his son came to the throne and his son was Antiochus IV. All right? Antiochus IV was a very, very different type of person because Antiochus IV had a personal belief in the all-conquering, all-civilizing value of Hellenization. He was pretty much, as part of that project, it's very difficult to argue otherwise, he was a full-on anti-Semite. Some people need to realize that anti-Semitism didn't start with Christianity. And I meant no offense by that statement, but it started long before. And when he came across the idea that the, there were factions in Judah that were resisting Hellenization, he attempted to impose it by an eradication of Judaism. We're not going into the whole story of that now. I'm only setting the background for the battle so you can understand what we're talking about historically. And then, of course, the famous events lead to a crucible where basically it gets so bad that they're offering pigs to Zeus Olympus on the Temple Mount. And Mattathias Matityahu HaKohen, the priest, commits an act of, of zealous killing against uh, a local uh, official and some other people who were trying to impose idol worship and that started the rebellion. And where were the Hasmoneans, that early family, living? In Modi'in. And where is Modi'in? Modi'in is just on the edge of the Shvela. Just on the edge of the Shvela. There. And Matityahu fled with his sons and their followers pretty much directly east into the hills of Bethel. Into the hill country here of Lower Ephraim. Not far from a town which became their base of operations deep in the Sumerian hills called Gofna. By the way, just so you get an idea, I, I wasn't going to say this, but I just want to, because some people might, might be thinking this. The Ayalon is pretty much, and this map is pretty much, shows you what is called today the West Bank and how difficult that is for us. The more you study the geography of the land of Israel, 
the more difficult it becomes to imagine how the Jewish people today, anybody who understands their history, would let go of that. I'm not making a political statement here. I'm simply saying how immersed one can become in the land of Israel because the West Bank is basically be that. I mean, it is Yehuda and Shomron. It's a kidney shape. Comes in at the Ayalon, goes out of the Ayalon. That's why you have a town like Modi'in, and that's what reminded me to, to talk about this, that, you know, is not universally accepted as being in Israel per se, because it sits just at the edge of the Shvela, and much of the Shvela is in today's West Bank. This is not going to become that kind of talk. I just wanted to say that we become very, very intimate with these areas when we study them for the purposes of Jewish history, and sometimes they can even change our opinions of what should happen today. But we'll get on to that. So the Hasmonean family run into the Sumerian hills. Now here's the thing. That happens around minus 167, 166. They've only got Judah has with him, Mattathias dies shortly after, and leaves Judah in charge of this nascent rebellion. Judah only has 200 men at that stage. You have to realize this. It starts with only 200 men. Over the next little while, that's going to grow a little bit, but they don't do anything for about the first two years. The rebellion has started. It's, they're fully conscious of it. They are full-time on it, but they don't do anything for two years. What are they doing? What are they doing in Gofna? That is one thing they're doing. Mind you, there's only 200 of them. Even by the end of that two-year two period, they've only got 600. They're gathering intelligence. Why is Judah Maccabee regarded as one of the great commanders of history is because almost everything he did became a lesson for future military tactics and all forms of warfare. He did nothing for two years but gather intelligence. Obviously, he, as you say, he was training his men. They would have been, by the end of those two years, they would have been very good at running up and down hills and at firing slingshots. They barely had any weapons. The only weapons they really had probably would have been some rudimentary farming tools, some slings, maybe a couple of pieces of sharp metal, but that's about it. So he was training a guerrilla army. What did I say was the most important thing in warfare in the land of Israel last week? Mobility. <laughs> now, and after mobility, intelligence. Two years. During, towards the end of that two-year period, however, Judah and his band of merry men were starting to kind of do little ambushes on Seleucid patrols in the area which helped them gain a little bit of weaponry, but more importantly, started to distill a kind of moral insecurity in the Seleucids. Now, let's talk for a second about the Seleucids. All right, I need to talk about the Seleucids. Because what, what intelligence did he need? What, what was he up against? Now, the Seleucids were based in two primary locations. 
One was here in Samaria, literally in the town of Samaria, or what remained of it, just down the road from Shechem, which is today Nablus. And they had a very big force in Jerusalem itself, because Antiochus had made sure there was a big fort in Jerusalem. They're not entirely sure even where that fort is, because it was so utterly demolished eventually, because it was such a hated building. But they think maybe it was somewhere in the Givati car park in the southern part of the old city today. And it had a lot of soldiers in it. So they're the two main things, but they would send out parties to try and apprehend Judah and his men, because obviously they became aware of the rebellion. Judah's men were harassing Seleucid patrols and making mobility for the Seleucids difficult. Now, I need to explain, to, for, in order to understand this, <laughs> we need to understand who the Seleucids were and what their army was. The Seleucid army had inherited most of its military technology and know-how and craft of warfare, if you like, from the Macedonian Greeks. It had evolved over a little bit over a century and a half from Alexander, but not a lot. The Seleucids, however, did refine certain techniques. And the whole of Seleucid warfare is based, as was Macedonian warfare, on the concept of the phalanx. Now, what is the phalanx? Anyone have a brief explanation of the phalanx? It was a formation, but we know the formation of the Seleucids is important. I'm going to go into this in detail for a couple of minutes because it's important to understand what was the actual way in which a phalanx worked. So how does that work? The basic fundamental tactical unit, not so much tactical unit perhaps, but the basic cohort of the phalanx of the uh, Seleucid army was what we call the syntagma. So the syntagma was now... I want, just do this with me. I've never done this in a talk before, but just do this with me, all right? Now, I want everybody in this line to stand up, please. And I want all you guys to stand up and align yourselves in a line with these guys. Come close together, come close together. And I'd like five people here to come and join this line. Don't fight until I tell you. Oh. But... Now, what you're seeing here, we got some pretty sprite, we got some pretty sprightly Seleucid soldiers. Yes, straight in the line, into line. Good. Now, that's 16 soldiers in a line. All right. Now, the syntagma was that width, and it was 16 deep. So you repeated that 16 times. But I want you to understand the size of it. So your core unit, or well, what's, what's that, about a square would bring us up to here? So that was your core, that was your syntagma. And that contained, you can take a seat, that contained, to, I mean, you didn't do, do that for the audience, you did it for me as well, because I actually physically wanted to see it. That meant that the syntagma comprised 256 men. Okay, 16 by 16, the square. That square, everyone is holding weaponry. The main weapon they've got is a very, very long metal pike. It needed to be held by two hands. It weighed a number of kilos. Their shields they had to wear like this, suspended from the neck over the shoulder. 
when, when the phalanx was facing that way, as these guys were, so the front five rows held their spears horizontally, and the 11 behind them held them vertically. And they were equipped also with swords, belt swords, and so on. Four of those, four of those, so about a thousand men, four of those square units formed a kiliarchia. And two kiliarchia, meaning eight syntagma, was about your smallest phalanx. Now that had incredible tactical flexibility on the battleground. And make no mistake, these guys drilled for hours and hours. So they could, at a moment's notice, switch around and create a front on that side and create a front on that side. But their main thing was they were like a human tank. They just moved forward and crushed everything in their path. Very scary. They were scary even for the Romans who had already defeated them famously at the Battle of Magnesia when they had to make the, when they made the Seleucid Empire sign all these treaties and so on. But the phalanx held back massive Roman legions for a long time and it was only in the last few years that Rome had managed to break through technologically and militarily to start their big expansion into the world. The phalanx was the major military device and had been for hundreds of years. Now, but it had certain disadvantages. It was very, very good on the open plain. It could crush anything in its path. It wasn't so good at surprise. You could see a phalanx coming. That wasn't going to be one of their strengths. And they generally fought in ground on their own terms. Now, after, towards the end of this two years, it became clear to Yehuda Maccabee that he knew that at some point the Seleucids were going to have to do something about this. Remember, the Seleucid political policy in Judea was to crush Judaism. Circumcision was punishable by death. Keeping kosher even, or refusing to eat non-kosher food, let alone many, many other, you know, Sabbath observances, things like this. It was an attempt to wipe out Judah. Make no mistake, <laughs> when we light those candles and eat those donuts, what we are celebrating and what we can be most proud of that Hanukkah is a Jewish festival, is that this is the first war in history fought for religious freedom in one's own country. It's huge. It's immensely inspiring what they did. But towards the end of these two years, Yehuda knew that the force in Samaria was going to have to deal with all of their little skirmishes and incursions Otherwise, they would effectively find themselves cut off. Now, the Seleucid governor, as the governor of Judea, effectively, for the, the military governor of Judea, based in Samaria, was a guy called Apollonius. Apollonius took 
his force, which was around pretty much one not large phalanx, about 2,000 men, and headed towards, well, there's two different opinions, but either way, he was headed straight south. He was either going to Jerusalem to join up with the main Seleucid garrison and fan out and defeat the rebels, or he was deliberately going straight for the rebels because he effectively was walking and marching directly towards Gofna. But we don't know if he was going to Gofna because going through Gofna is also the shortest way to get to Jerusalem from Samaria. This is the first battle that the Maccabeans fought. They had fought a few skirmishes, but only very, very small patrolling parties at a time. This is their first major battle, and it's brilliant. And it is the battle of Ma'ale Levonah, famous battle. Yehuda has 600 men, and Apollonius is marching his phalanx south from Samaria to wherever he's going to, but effectively to fight. First of all, Yehuda realizes, as you would, I mean, you can see it. You can go there today and you can see it, or you can see videos of it. And you come out of Samaria, it dips down, and then you've got a quite a steep ascent through various hills to get to the ridges of the hills of Samaria. It's what they call these defiles that you see them when you drive around. You, it's, a, it's a narrow thing. It can be rising. It's a steep ascent, but you've got hills coming on either side and it's quite windy. So the road would have gone a little bit like that with hills here and hills here. It meant that as Apollonius was marching his phalanx, the end of the phalanx couldn't always see what was happening at the front. Moreover, and this is really, really important, Yehuda knew, and this is because he'd spent so much time on intelligence, he probably knew more about how a phalanx works than most Seleucid commanders by this stage. He knew that it would be impossible to maintain their 16 formation going through these defiles. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. The whole phalanx formation, not the first time they'd ever gone up a hill, not the first time they'd ever gone through a narrow pass, so they had standard procedures. And the standard procedure for this one, which was about the narrowest, was they reduced to a column of four wide. Now, Apollonius was marching this phalanx in two separate cohorts. He had two kiliake, four kiliake, oh sorry, four syntagma, kiliake in front of him, and he had four behind him, and he rode in between the two. Yep, and they're marching up. Yehuda waits, of course. They've been marching all day. So first thing Yehuda does is he waits until late afternoon to attack them. Is that when you think these guys would have been at their freshest? marching since dawn and schlepping probably a whole lot of equipment with them. He attacks them in the late afternoon. 
And what he does is he divides his 600 men against an entire phalanx of 2,000, 600 for all intents and purposes not terribly well armed men. He divides them up into one, units of 150. So the first thing that happens to this phalanx as they're coming up the hill is that there are 150 men suddenly in front of them and there's only four wide and they've just turned a bend so all the guys behind them can't see what's happening and they are suddenly beset upon from the south along the pass by what they call a sealing unit which seals off the path of 150 who begin to harass them by throwing rocks and slingshots and in some cases can even get close enough to maybe poke a sharp object at them and it starts creating tremendous confusion. As the unit comes around the hill, they start crashing into these guys who are in front and no one knows what's going on. <laughs> Meanwhile, minutes later, another group of 150 attacks the column full on from the east. So immediately the phalanx goes, oh, that's the main force, we're being attacked from the east, and they switch around to the east, and as soon as they do that, another force attacks them. Only 150 guys, but they don't know that. And bear in mind this, these guys in the phalanx can't afford to leave the phalanx. That would be suicide. And, the, and yet Yehuda's soldiers have all the mobility they want. They can run up the hill, down the hill to the side and keep pelting and harassing and, and, uh, and killing. So obviously they're attacked from all three sides in this very, very narrow defile. Apollonius has taken his horse and gone to see what's happened. So he's gone forward. And as soon as he is in that main crucible of the attack, he's killed. When the units behind see that, they start running back down the hill. And there is where Yehuda placed himself and 150 men at the retreat. And that entire phalanx was wiped out. That meant that Yehuda gained several things apart from having wiped out a phalanx, which sent a massive message to the rest of Judea, morale-wise and in terms of this is on, this is game on. He also managed to pick up a huge amount of weapons and material, including and perhaps especially the famous Sword of Apollonius. Yehuda Maccabi took Apollonius's personal sword and fought with it for the rest of his life. Every single battle that Yehuda Maccabi won from there, he personally fought with the sword of Apollonius, which they picked up at the very first battle of Ma'ale Levona. Now, once news of the wipeout of an entire Seleucid phalanx, not a cheap thing, by the way, once news of that reached back to the rulers in the Seleucid dynasty, meaning the ruler, Antiochus, what do you think was Antiochus' reaction? 
Anger is one way of putting it. Huh? He completely lost it. This apart, I mean, remember, we're talking about a major anti-Semite here. Someone who's trying to crush Judaism, someone who doesn't like Jews. And suddenly, Jews are not only they're rebelling, but they're wiping out Seleucid phalanxes. That's it. I'm going to send a force and they're going to deal with it. And basically, he had a number of outstanding generals to choose from. And the one that got chosen was the one that was probably the most enthusiastic. And that was a general called Seron. And Seron basically put his hand up and said, pick me. Apollonius was an idiot. Give it to a proper commanding officer. I know how to beat these Judeans. Don't you worry. So he comes with double the amount of soldiers. He brings two major phalanxes. Basically four kiliaki, four thousand men. And he goes, you think I'm going to be an idiot like Apollonius and come here? I'm going to conquer like all the great conquerors of history who conquered Judea. First of all, I'll bring my men down here. We'll march through the Jezreel Valley like proper mention. We'll go through the Megiddo Pass as you do. We discussed all that last week, right? And then we'll go down the coastal plain. And then we'll head inland. And I know I can do that because many have done it before. That's the way you go. You go into the Ayalon Valley and you go up that way. Now, here's the thing. The classic route is you go into the Ayalon and then you go up to a pass here which is called the Pass of Bet Horon. And from there, you basically get to the north, you get to the Binyamite area, and then you head south. So that most people approaching Jerusalem in those days, especially armies, would, would have come to Jerusalem from the north via the Bet Horon Pass. Everybody follow? When I say pass, it means it's a ridge. So you're not going up and down valleys and like that, which you don't want to do schlepping gear and with an army, or even as a pilgrim. You just want, it can be a bit of an incline, but you just want a straightforward ridge road that's going to take you. That's what the Bet Horon Pass gives you. There is another way into Jerusalem. This is important. There is another way into Jerusalem from the Ayalon Valley. Because it breaks off here, it can go this way. That is a more direct route, but it's a little more difficult. That's called the path of Kiryat Yarim. Those of you who are familiar with Kiryat Yarim from Tanakh will know that the Ark of the Covenant sat there for quite some time. Those of you who are familiar with Kiryat Yarim from today but can't quite know why, it's because any bus or taxi you take going to Jerusalem will pass by Kiryat Yarim on the left. That's a more difficult pass, but even that one in ancient times would basically head to north of Jerusalem and then south. The only reason they can go straight from Kiryat Yarim across the uh, Upper Sorek and the Kassalon Valleys today, straight into Jerusalem, is because of modern technology that can build roads and bridges and this thing called the car, which doesn't have a problem going up and down hills. Well, it does if you're in Israel, but that's a separate issue. All right. So, Seron goes, I'm going to take my army and I'm going to march them through here 
and we're going up to Bet Choron. And from Bet Choron, we'll go through here and we'll come into Jerusalem. We'll join up with all the Seljucid garrison in the Acre in Jerusalem. We'll fan out. We'll crush the rebellion. I'm Seron. I'm the dude. I know how to do this. It's not a bad idea. The Bet Horon Pass has been used numerously by invading armies. In fact, the two most important conquests of Jerusalem in the 20th century, which were, which were, Allenby and 1967, the Israeli army, whether you're British army under Allenby, the Israeli army in 1967, they all took the Bet Horon route to Jerusalem. It's not bad. But... If you're coming from the south, Jerusalem's got a discomfort. Yes, yeah, yeah, but we're not coming from the south, we're coming from the west. And that's the way you come if you've got a massive army and it's coming from the north. You're going to go coastal plain in. The problem with the Bet Horon Pass is once again, there are a number of different valleys or, or, or rather ridges where you've got these defiles through hills. Now, when Yehuda's men, who were basically gathered around here, so they, can, they got a good vantage point over what's going on, and they can see Seron's army coming into the Ayalon Valley. They can see Seron's army coming up from the Ayalon Valley, up, the Bet-Hor- up towards the Bet-Horon route. So there's no surprise, but these guys seriously freak out. They seriously freak out. Because Seron brought not only 4,000 men marching in precise formation, a lot of equipment. It was a very, very frightening prospect, even for these guys that had been one phalanx of Apollonius. But this is a different ground. This is a different look. This is a different level of determination. And they started to get afraid. And Yehuda, by the way, those of you who are wondering, well, how do we know all this? Is because we have quite a lot of sources for all this. We've got Maccabees 1, we've got Maccabees 2, we've got Josephus, and we've got some other types of records as well. Judah gave them this phenomenal speech on the eve of the Battle of Bet Horon. And it's the speech that really you want to give and you want to get. These guys that are coming towards us don't really care. They're just professional soldiers in an army being sent by a king to kill us. And Seron was given instructions, don't stop at beating Judah Maccabee and his men, kill everybody. But ultimately, they're not invested. But this is our land. This is where we live. Our families are close by. We are the last line of defense. And they do not have God. We have faith and we have courage and we are right. And if you have all of those things, you have nothing to fear. It was a phenomenally rousing speech. You can read about it in the book of Maccabees. It's an incredible speech. It suddenly stirred everyone into realization of what it was. And once again, total control. Yehuda Maccabee had total control over his forces. And this time... Seron, the big general, marches them. Now, the Bet Horon Pass also gets a little thin. 
Seron, unlike Apollonius, Seron decided that he would ride at the head of the phalanx. So that if there were anything that happened, he could send instructions back and not have the problem that they had at Ma'ale Levona when the phalanx kept going into trouble. And in fact, he had them much more spaced out. The whole phalanx was spaced out over about a mile. Yehuda realized that the same tactics wouldn't necessarily work. So he aimed for something a little more moderate. He himself led the sealing movement. He took, he took the eastern unit. By now, he has a thousand men with him. He hasn't grown a lot, but he's got a thousand men with him now. And they're much better armed than they were at Ma'ale Levona, because they have the weapons from there. But here's the big deal. Judah said, we're outnumbered four to one. We're out-ammunitioned, we're out-weaponed. I mean, we can't face their, their weaponry. We do have the advantage of knowing the geography. We do have the advantage of surprise. But this is a very, very long and well-equipped phalanx. We're not going to be able to use the same tactics. So what we're going to do, regardless of what happens, regardless of what happens in this battle, Seron has to die. So in the very first instance, we're going to concentrate everything on him. And that's exactly what they did. Judah took his unit of 250 men and they attacked the very, very front of the phalanx. And the first thing they did was they killed Seron. That, of course, as well as harassment from the sides, sent the front units into confusion. When these guys, this time, these guys saw in advance what was happening, and they ran. And this time, Yehuda did not seal that exit, and he chased them all the way down the hill, and they fled. But he did manage to kill about 800 of them, and of course, pick up all their weapons. That's nearly a quarter of their strength got wiped out in the Battle of Bet Choron. It wasn't a total decimation like in Ma'ale Levona, but it was a very, very significant win. And of course, it was a win against a general who had come with the express purpose of defeating the Maccabean Revolt. Battle of Bet Choron, very, very important battle. Now, the next battle is just pure entertainment. It's astonishing. And the background to the next battle is the fact that Antiochus, really, really upset now. Really upset. But he's got other problems. He's got to take an army and head east. He's got problems in his eastern borders with the Persians. So he's got to go and deal with that. But he leaves in charge of the empire while he's absent a nobleman, a general called Lysias. He also leaves Lysias in charge of his own son to regent while he's away. So basically, Antiochus is in the east and Lysias is in charge. And one of the things that Antiochus says to Lysias before he goes east, deal with those bloody Judeans. I want that dealt with. And of course, Lysias would uh, relish the chance to be the hero of this. The emperor is off fighting wars, but I'm going to solve this problem for him. 
and he sends a ginormous force 20,000 in fact he basically takes half the, the entire Seleucid army the half that Antiochus didn't take plus a few thousand in cavalry and Lysias doesn't come himself he picks three generals who are going to lead this this is an enormous force it needed three generals Nicanor a general called Ptolemaeus and a general called Gorgias or Georgias now they come and they go well we're not going to make the mistake that Seron made. We is not going up the Bedhoron path. In fact, we're going to come and we're not going to go anywhere. We are going to base ourselves in the Ayalon Valley. We're going to set up a massive base camp at a place called Emmaus. Emmaus is the ancient name for it. Imwis, Emmaus, and it's now known by, and has been for much of the 20th century, and today, by another name, they've got to, they found the ruin of Emmaus, which was a town, one of the great towns in, the, in that time that was overlooking the Ayalon Valley Pass. Formerly in biblical times it was Gezer, but now it was Emmaus, which is today known as Latrun. Oh. That then led to, remember I said this geography will come into use in future lectures, that then led to the incredible battle of Emmaus. This massive force under Nicanor, Georgias and Ptolemaeus decided that they would settle a massive base camp. And not only that, but because they had such a huge army and were so convinced they were going to wipe out this rebellion that Nicanor even invited numerous slave traders to be available to come ready, set themselves up at Emmaus and very soon the Seleucid force would start delivering Jewish slaves to them at the rate of 90 per talent. They were just going to take Jews, enslave them, and flog them off to the slave traders. This was the end. Antiochus had told Lysias, and Lysias had told Nicanor, Georgias, and Ptolemaeus, I want this thing completely crushed. I want you to get rid of all the people. You either kill them or sell them off as slaves, and you re-establish other people there. You eradicate Judaism, and you eradicate the Jews. I'm telling you, Antiochus was a first-grade anti-Semite. So this becomes this great big base camp. Now, by this time, because it took a little while until all of this eventuated, another year or two, but by this time, Judah, who knew they were going to come, has 6,000 men. 6,000 men. And he's got a reasonable amount of weapons, but uh, that's just an enormous force. That's an enormous force. And not all of Judah's 6,000 men were necessarily commando trained. I mean, we're talking including all his reserves and everything. But he gathers them all at Mitzpah. Mitzpah, if you recall, is just at the north of the 
Benjamin Plateau. It is very, very close to a place that I'm sure you're all familiar with, which is Nabi Samwell. And from there you can overlook things. But he gathered everyone together and they made some prayers. And they said, we're going to do our best. They did the mitzvah of allowing anyone that had recently been married or anyone that was scared to go home and all the rest of it. And they're left with a force of 6,000. What then happens is just a combination of brilliant, brilliant tactics and total farce. Judah takes a large proportion, he take, basically takes the army that he's got and he sets up camp in the hills to the southeast of Emmaus. Now, here's the important part. You've got a little bit of this area of the Shvela that juts out here, and the pass can go one of two ways. You can go up the Bet Horon Pass, or you can go, as you, we mentioned, the Kiryat Yarim Pass, and that enters where? What do we call that, where it enters that pass? You know it, you just don't realize you know it. Shah Hagai. Shah Haggai and anybody who's been to Israel and anybody who's caught a taxi or a bus or a Sherut to from the airport to Jerusalem has gone through Shah Haggai because that's where Kvish Misparechad goes these days. But up in the hills above Shah Haggai, Judah camps his entire army, totally visible to the Seleucids. So the two armies are watching each other. And... Uh, the Seleucid generals are going, I'm not going up that hill. I'm not going up that hill. I'm not going up that hill until Georgius can't take it anymore. He goes, I'm going up that hill. Now, however, Georgius decides he's going to be a chuchum. He's going to surprise the Maccabeans because he's going to attack them at night. They'll never suspect that. And they'll, because we never attack at night, that's their thing, so they'll never attack. We, so I'm going to take 5,000 men and I'm going to go up that hill and I'm going to wipe them out. Yehuda, obviously, they play right into his tactics. He's just waiting for that to happen. They're taunting them, so he knew it was going to happen. As soon as he gets word, because the scouting that the Maccabeans had was fantastic, as soon as Yehuda got word, that Georgius had left the base camp at Emmaus to go up the hill with 5,000 men. Yehuda took all of the men, but left 200 in the camp and lit numerous fires, campfires. So as Gorgias is coming up the hill, it looks like the entire camp is fully occupied. He made total advantage of the fact that it was night. All Gorgias can see up the hill is this dozens and dozens and dozens of campfires. Must be a huge force up there. I've got them by surprise. You can imagine him creeping up the hill going, we've got them, we've got them. And all these guys with their swords, 5,000 Seleucids. And they get, and then just as they're nearly at the top of the hill, the 200 guys that Judah has left in the camp, right, start running up the hill and round a bend visible to the Seleucids, so that Gorgias believes that what he's seeing is just the tail of the whole army that's fleeing into the hills. But of course, they haven't gone into the hills. Judah has taken his entire force 
of nearly 6,000 men, minus the 200 he left at the camp to do that ruse, he's taken them somewhere else completely. Where has he taken them? To Emmaus. Now, first of all, therefore, Gorgias, uh, Yehuda has eliminated 5,000 men in one stroke. Gorgias spends that whole night running around the hills looking for this Judean army he appears to have lost. <laughs> Judah takes the vast majority of the army and they come back down, come around this way, so that they approach Emmaus from the west. They emerge from the Shvelah here. In other words, not obviously the way that Gorgias had gone up, but they come at Emmaus from the west. Now, there we find there was a little surprise for Judah. Judah's plan was to attack the base camp because he felt that the base camp was nowhere near ready for that kind of defense. They wouldn't be in formation, there would be panic, there would be mayhem, there was bedlam, there were all those things, but not the way Judah planned it, because when Judah hit the valley of Ayalon, he saw, and he's, already, he's on a height when he sees it, that Nicanor has actually brought out a major part of the Syrian armed forces in Emmaus and arranged them in phalanx formation in the valley, in defense of the base camp. So Yehuda goes, okay, here we are. He's got 6,000 men. I'll take 3,000 with me. And he takes, gives 1,500 men to each, of, to, uh, to his other brothers, to Yohanan and Yonatan. Judah attacks the phalanx. They're facing south because they think they think that if Judah's army is going to come out, it's going to come out from the Kiryat Yarim entrance, or first rather, or, or from Shar Haggai entrance. But in, so they were facing that in order to protect the base camp. Judah attacks them from the west with 3,000 men. He can't take on the phalanx full on with 3,000 men, but he can start to mop up the cavalry and the side flank of the phalanx very effectively with 3,000 men. Obviously, what would happen normally is that the phalanx would then swing round to face that front. But they couldn't swing round because they were getting harassed on both sides on the east from the other two units of 50, or from one of the units of 1500, from one of those units, was preventing the army from swinging around. So they were attacked on both sides and they went in very, very solidly in hand-to-hand -hand combat so that they were isolating groups of the phalanx. They effectively dissolved the phalanx by infiltration. A lot of people died, took a number of hours, but they eventually got the better of the west side of the phalanx. At which point, the other 1,500 men went straight to Emmaus and started attacking the base camp with gusto. Burning stuff, killing people, there were elephants running everywhere, there were camels running everywhere, there were slave dealers running everywhere, people were panicking, it was a mayhem, at which point when the phalanx, what remained of the phalanx turned around and saw what was happening at the base camp, they dissolved and ran. Meanwhile, Gorgias, having spent all night running around looking for this army, 
hits the hills, looks down in the valley, sees the total bedlam. His phalanx is dissolved and running away. The base camp is on fire and he just goes, oh, no way, and just heads off towards the coast with his army and they go back to Antioch. The Battle of Emmaus was a win against a phenomenal force, bearing in mind that Judas, another signally important part of Judah's discipline over his army was the fact that when everybody ran from the base camp, Judah made it forbidden at that stage to get any booty. He said, we'll get the spoil and the booty, but we still have things to deal with. He had to wait for George's force to come back. He had to clean up the operations in the phalanx, and they listened to him. But eventually, when all the Seleucid forces had gone, they went to Emmaus and they got stacks of stuff. Weapons, gold, silver, things you might want. And which they were going to need. Because they had one more big battle to fight. Emmaus was stunning. I mean, they beat 20, over 20,000 Seleucid soldiers at Emmaus. It's a massive, that was a massive turning point. But the Assyrians did not not the Assyrians, the Seleucids in Syria, did not give up. Obviously, Lysias, still in charge of the empire, was not very happy about that, apart from the fact that he wasn't happy about that, but also he was going to have to answer to Antiochus. And so, if you want a job done, what do you do, Joe? What do you do if you want a job done? You do it yourself. So Lysias took another ginormous Seleucid army under his own personal command. That's the regent of the entire Seleucid Empire. Comes with the biggest army yet. Some say it was as many as 60,000. I don't know if it was necessarily that much more than what had based at Emmaus, but it was a huge force. And Lysias goes, you know what? <laughs> I'm no Apollonius, and I'm no Seron, and I'm no Georgius. I'm a lot smarter. I'm Lysias. I'm going to take Jerusalem the way, and I'm going to crush this rebellion the way that they did it in the past. Look at how the Assyrians took this entire area. Look how the Babylonians took this entire area. They didn't come in through here. They came and they said, we're going to bypass the Shvela. Well, the Assyrians and the Babylonians didn't bypass the Shvela. They just controlled every single valleyway before they made their way up. But he said, we're going to go and we're going to bypass and we're going to go via the south. We're going to go via the pass of Lachish. We're going to go through the Shvela from the bottom and we're going to come up here and we're going to hit Jerusalem from the south, from the escarpment, as you say. Obviously, Judah, with his excellent information and intelligence and scouting, was following this huge force, wondering when they would be turning east and following as they would have gone all the way down to Lachish and then turned east. By which time Judah obviously knew 
which way they were going to come. And there's only one way to come. And that is that you've basically got to get up into the Hebron hills, but you're going to join up ultimately with the major northwest ridge road that goes through the whole of Yehudah and Shomron, which is famously called the Road of the Patriarchs. If you look at that road, you will see on it, in an almost direct south to north line, all of the famous biblical places that you're familiar with. It starts at Beersheba, goes up to Hebron, Beit Lechem, Yerushalayim, Mitzpah, Giv'ah, Mitzpah, Beit El, Shiloh, Shechem. Look at it. It's one line. And why are those towns on that one line? Because that's the road. That's the road through the hill country. So he comes up to Jerusalem from the south, north of Hebron, and Judah decides that he's going to meet this force. He's got 10,000 men. Lysias has got 60,000 men. He's going to meet this force at a place called the fourth battle is the battle of Beit Tzur. And of course, this decisive battle is alluded to in a famous song called Maoz Tzur. Beit Tzur is south of Jerusalem, uh, between Hebron and Jerusalem, and Yehuda realizes that although he had some moderate success there on the Valley of Ayalon fighting the phalanx, he didn't want to repeat that. He's going to go back to his traditional guerrilla tactics of surprise, hit and surprise. And at the valley, at, at the Battle of Betzur, there is a level at which it goes through hills. It's very, very difficult to see around the hills. It's perfect ambush territory. And even this massive force, Yehuda was able, once again, using more or less the tactics from Bet Horon, that they attacked the head of the column, causing panic and confusion behind. Now, this force was too big to run, but they did become incredibly confused and panicked, and they did lose about 5,000 men before Lysias called it quits and says, we're going to head back south and we're going to recamp at Hebron and work out our next moves. Yehuda made a very, very important decision then not to follow that army back to Hebron, but instead to take the opportunity to head north to Jerusalem. He felt that he had dealt the Seleucids enough of a blow that they were going to leave him alone for a while. And this became confirmed because while that was happening and Lysias was deciding what he was going to do next, he received news from Antioch that Antiochus had died. Or was dying, had become wounded in the east. So he realized that there was going to be all sorts of power play, archiparchy going on up there in the Seleucid Empire. He needed to take all his troops and head back. 
So as the Maccabean army is watching, without even necessarily knowing what had happened, they see this entire massive force of 60,000 men come back down the hills into the Shvela and leave. That would have seemed like nothing short of a miraculous victory from God, which indeed it was. Some people actually say that the real miracle was the death of Antiochus as much as anything else because it meant that Lysias' forces disappeared and that's the point at which Judah said, now we have to do this. And they went to Jerusalem and they rededicated the Beit HaMikdash, they rededicated the temple and created the conditions that we now know as Hanukkah. They still had many, many battles in front of them. We're not doing the other battles. I just wanted to do these four leading up to the rededication of the temple. In the next battle, the first of the Maccabean, of the Hasmonean brothers is going to die. In the Maccabees' first defeat, that's the battle of Beth Zechariah, also fought, fought south of Jerusalem. Obviously the Seleucids had realized they had more success south of Jerusalem. Lysias might have lost that battle, but he could see how he could win it. He might have lost 5,000 men at Beit Sur, but he could see that that didn't necessarily have to be that way. And had he not had to head back to the Seleucid Empire, he might have actually stayed and tried again. When they did try again, they came from the south and they defeated the Maccabees in open phalanx warfare. It was the first time the Maccabees had tried that and they lost. And also because the Seleucids brought with them dozens of elephants, Indian elephants, not African elephants, massive creatures. The Maccabees had never seen this before, although Eliezer died trying to show the rest of the men that you could kill one of these things, but he only killed it because he, he killed it, but the elephant crushed him and he died. By the eighth battle, Judah himself has been killed, but the Maccabees eventually eke out this independent state. But it's the first four battles led against overwhelming odds, using tremendous tactics, knowledge of the land of Israel, mobility, intelligence, that mean that we, as a people, are still here today and are still able to walk around these areas, proudly Jewish, because of Yehuda Maccabi. Hanukkah is not a festival that belongs in the past. It belongs very, very much in the present, if you understand what it means. We introduced the idea to the world of fighting not for being right. It's not a jihad where we say, you're wrong, we're right. It is a fight for the right to be free and the right to believe how we want to believe and to practice as the traditions of our fathers. So I hope that I have unpacked some of that. All this happens by 164. All of these four battles happen between about 166, 165 and 164 over an 18 month, 24 month period. But by the end of 164, around Hanukkah time, we rededicate the temple and that is the, that's the incredible miracle. I didn't talk much last week about God. Obviously, God was very present in the overflowing of the Kishon and of all the great miracles that happened in relation to those battles. 
but I've tried to understand these things on human terms, but on human terms, this is nothing less than astonishing. The Seleucids were one of the major superpowers of the age, and just a few hundred and then a few thousand men banded together with common purpose to defeat them. And that's probably Yehuda Maccabees, as much as his tactics, as much as his brilliance and his force of leadership, it's his ability to inspire the morale of his troops to understand what they were fighting for that is ultimately the deciding factor between these two forces. And I thank you for listening to that. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.